Well, again, I'm Marshall Brown. Welcome you. Those I have not met, I'd love to meet you after the service. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, good to be seen. I'd say see you, but I don't see you, but it's good to be seen, I guess. I don't know. It's been a crazy morning. I should let you know this in case this goes off the rails. Um, um, my wife is out of town uh, visiting some girlfriends and... Um, and my, my son and I flew to my home, Dallas, to surprise my, his grandfather, my dad, which was a great, great, fun thing. Uh, we were supposed to come back like middle of the afternoon yesterday. We got back about one o'clock last night. Uh, so I had a six-year-old by myself this morning trying to finish a sermon. Uh, the first service, I literally, the service started at nine. I, I get up to preach like nine fifteen, nine twenty. I walked into the sanctuary at nine ten. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully I'll be a little more composed right now. I'll pray for myself and you in just a moment. But I do want to make one more announcement, in addition to one that Chris made. I will be leading, you may have heard of this, a trip uh, this coming summer, spring uh, to Amsterdam and to Germany, May 26th through June 5th, to visit Mario and Elsbeth Taffner, who are beloved members of our community. The Taffners are part of this really cool church. Uh, they were members of our church for years. I think Elsbeth actually is still a member, and I know that Mario is a member of our presbytery. Uh, and they do this really cool work at Tyndall in Amsterdam. Tyndall is this seminary where people from all over the world, particularly from Asia, I mean, Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, and the Middle East, they come to Amsterdam to be educated because they can't in their own countries and they can't come to America, but they go to Tyndall to be educated and they go back to their countries as pastors and ministry leaders. And it's such a cool work uh, that Mario and Elsbeth are engaged in. They're in uh, Amsterdam. We are big supporters of theirs uh, as a church and many of you individuals. And so we're going there to encourage them. Uh, but also, after Amsterdam, we're going to spend uh, most of a week touring sites of the German Protestant Reformation. We had Martin Luther here with us this morning. Uh, it was such great uh, him for him to visit. Um, uh, we're going to visit places like Wittenberg, where the 95 Theses were nailed to the wall. Places like Worms, I'll talk about in a second, and Wartburg Castle, which I will talk about in just a second. Uh, the trip is designed to encourage the Taffeners. It's designed to remember what God did in 16th century uh, Germany in the recovery and clarification of the gospel, but also to imagine who God is calling our church to be in the 21st century global church. So if you're interested, uh, the, the deadline is closed again. Please email me, uh, marshall at gracenorthshore.org. I can give you more details and help you to make that decision. Uh, I'd love to have you join uh, myself, and I think my wife, Allison, will be going as well. But let me pray before we look at this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 15. Our great God, we pray that you uh, would be with us now as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture, and we pray, Lord, that uh, all of our hearts would be tuned to hear your voice speaking to us. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, perhaps mine especially, uh, would be inclined to you. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Well, as I prayed a moment ago, and you've heard, tomorrow is All Saints Day, but today is Reformation Sunday as well as Halloween, of course. Because 504 years ago today, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, an action that ended up starting the Protestant Reformation. Now, in the, in the moment in, in Martin Luther's life that most compels me was four years later, which would have been 500 years ago this year, in April of 1521, 500 years ago this year, uh, an event took place that is really just, is just 
so compelling to me because it's called the Diet of Worms and the most powerful man of that century and really one of the most powerful men of all time, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V summoned Martin Luther to this conference. They call it a diet in the city called Worms. It's spelled like worms but pronounced Worms, okay? And the, the most powerful person in that, of that century calling Martin Luther to stand before him and, and Charles, Char, Charles V asked Martin Luther two questions. They laid all of Martin Luther's writings out on a table. And he said, first of all, did you write these things? And Martin Luther said, yes, I wrote those things. And he said, second of all, do you retract them? Do you withdraw what you have written? And Martin Luther said yes to the first question. He said, for the second one, knowing the consequences, give me 24 hours. Let me think and pray about how I want to answer that. So what must have been a very anxious, sleep-deprived night, uh, he went away. He came back the next morning. It's a longer speech. Let me read to you the last paragraph of the speech. This is Martin Luther answering the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. He says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot And I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Now, it's reputed that at that moment he said, here I stand, I can do no other. We actually think, historical sources think he actually did not say that. But nonetheless, he did say, God help me. Amen. And as he shuffled out of the room, he muttered to one of his friends, I am finished. He had a letter of safe passage that was good for 21 days. 21 days he was safe to travel around the country. But after that, all bets were off. And a day or so after he left, the emperor, Charles V, excuse me, issued an edict that declared him to be an outlaw, meaning that someone could kill Martin Luther without fear of repercussion or of punishment. Now, one week later, Martin Luther, in a planned uh, event, was kidnapped by a friend and escorted away to a place called Wartburg Castle. It still stands today, Wartburg Castle. And for a year there, he hid out in Wartburg Castle. He spent his time translating uh, the New Testament into German. But for a year, he waited it out until the storm blew over. And yes, on our trip next year, we will visit Wittenberg, Wartburg, and the real place I want to see, Worms. I can't, I just that moment where he had to answer the question, knowing they would cost him his life, standing on the word of God, but saying, I can do no other. Now, I tell that story, A, is a public service announcement, I'm not going to lie, uh, but it's also an awesome story, and it's just important for us to remember how God has worked through our sisters and brothers who have gone before, which is to say it's important to know and remember church history, Okay. But it also illustrates, this story does, the point of the passage that I will be talking about this morning, Matthew chapter 15. Because did you notice what was central for Martin Luther? He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. He realized it would cost him his life, but he knew his conscience was captive to the word of God. He believed the Bible was his sole authority. And he was willing to risk his life for that principle. Now, this is just a little historical. If you might remember this from your social studies class, the Renaissance, which was immediately before the Reformation, they kind of commingled, but the Renaissance came first. And the rallying cry of the Renaissance was to the sources, to the sources. The Latin is ad fontes. We go back to the sources. And for the Renaissance, that means let's go back to the, to the civilization of the Greeks and the Romans to recover the learning. Well, the Reformers adopted the same 
mantra, the same thing, to the sources, but their source was the scripture. Let's go back to the Bible and look to it for our only rule for faith and practice. So this morning we have been, uh, this fall we've been studying the book of Matthew, and today we're in Matthew chapter 15. And as much as any passage in the whole gospel of Matthew, Matthew is the first book in the Christian New Testament, not the first written, but the first listed, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew 15. And as much as any passage in this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, this is an illustration, this passage is, of several of the key slogans of the Reformation. The primary one that we're going to look at today is the slogan, by scripture alone. Now, I don't like to use foreign words, although we already used one. I'm about to use a couple more because these are easy to remember. They're a memory device. Uh, but there's these five Latin phrases, five solas, they call them. I'm going to give you the English translations. These five solas, which really kind of captured the spirit of the Protestant Reformation. There is, first of all, sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. Then there's sola fide, which means by faith alone. Sola gratia, which means by grace alone. Solo Dea Gloria, which means to God alone be glory, which interestingly is how Johann Sebastian Bach signed his works. He didn't sign his works JSB, he signed them SDG, Sola Dea Gloria. And then the fifth sola, Solus Christus, or by Christ alone, okay? Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, to God and be a glory alone, and through Christ alone. And today especially, grace alone, faith alone, and primarily by Scripture alone, okay? So this is about Scripture, this passage. Now, but the passage is not so much a statement of faith. This is not a theological treatise. This is very important to understand. This passage is about how the Bible functions in your life and mine. How the Bible functions in your life. It's not a theological statement, but how the Bible functions in your life. And I want us to see four things about the function of Scripture. First, and I'm going to use a, both a verb and a metaphor so you can latch on to one or the other or both. But first, the Scripture functions as a rule to live by or a blueprint. The scripture functions as a mirror that reveals our hearts, or a mirror, okay? Or the scripture functions as a spur that prods us to love. And then finally, we will see that scripture functions as a pointer to Christ, a living sign, as it were, okay? But first, let's see that the scriptures function as a rule to live by, a blueprint. It's a little bit of an imperfect metaphor, but stay with me. Now, look with me, verse 1. Now, the Pharisees, uh, they get word of what is happening with Jesus. They are down in Jerusalem. Jesus is ministering in the north of what we call modern Israel, a region called Galilee. And so this group of Pharisees, they travel north to speak with Jesus. They've heard rumors, and they want to hear for themselves. Now, these Pharisees, I'm going to call them religious leaders for the sake of ease, but they actually weren't religious leaders specifically. They were not associated with the temple per se, but they were a very powerful force within first century Judaism. They were patriots. They were conservative family values people. They were the people trying to resist the push of the Roman Empire. The Romans controlled the Jewish nation, and the Pharisees were the one group saying, we're going to distinguish ourselves. We're going to draw bright lines, and we're not going to assimilate there were other Jewish folks, like the Sadducees, for instance, who did accommodate to the Romans. But the Pharisees drew strong, they have very bright lines, we're not going to do this, okay? And they were very scrupulous, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, in keeping the law of God. They didn't even want to accidentally break the commandments, okay? To be completely safe, some of them, for instance, would take a full immersion bath... So they would be ceremonially clean every morning and after they had returned from being out in public. They didn't want to be unclean, so they took a full immersion bath to be ceremonially clean. They were trying really hard to be good, really hard to be pure. So they had tra tra traditions, excuse me, 
like this hand washing that we see, that they would wash their hands ceremonially before, before the eating of a meal. And I think what's happening here, let's be sympathetic to them in this, what's happening in this text. I think they are trying to understand Jesus. They're not coming at him so much as an antagonist at this point, I don't think. They're coming trying to understand Jesus. I actually think they're trying to bring him to their side. What do you say? Here's what we say. Let's be allies against the Romans, okay? I think they're saying, this guy's pretty good. We need to clean up a few things and he can be our ally. So verse 2, they ask him, Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do they do it? They don't wash their hands when they eat. What's the deal? Now, to let the full weight of this passage hit you, you have to understand this is not just about keeping rules. This is not just about morality. This is about holding on to an identity. They are being crushed and oppressed by the Romans, and they are doing everything in their power to hold on to who they are, the people of God. And so I want you to be sympathetic to these Pharisees because I think we can feel this in the 21st century when it feels like there's a lot of things in this world that are pressing down on Christians and pushing. And we want to hold our identity. We want our children to hold on to their identity. We don't want to accommodate at every corner. And that's what the Pharisees were doing, okay? It's not just about purity. It's about holding on to an identity. But Jesus is having none of it. He realizes there is no greater threat to the real thing than a good counterfeit. There's no greater thing to the real thing than a good counterfeit. And it's so easy to allow morality to masquerade as true religion. It's so easy to allow morality to... And I see, we see this in the... I just... This isn't in the notes. This is what happens when you haven't slept. This is all over our culture and it's all over churches, right? Where we... The things that masquerade as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kind of with religious language and morality surrounding it, but it is not the true religion. And so Jesus sees this and he fires back. Verse 3, he answers them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? What he's saying is you're placing your tradition above the commands of God, above the word of God. Your tradition has become your authority, not the word of God. He goes on, verse 4, it says, for God commanded, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So you take the tradition you have made. For the the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. And the key there is in verse 4, it says, for God commanded. In verse 5, but you say. For God commanded, but you say. It's like the Bible is important, but what really matters is the tradition. Now, it's easy for us to pick on the Pharisees, these traditions, but we have our own traditions. We may not call them traditions, but there are things that we put over the Word of God functionally. For some of us, it's it's what the state says and what politics. You especially see this around the globe. Or maybe we put reason and science, and I'm not saying we don't use I need to make a qualifier here. Scripture alone does not mean Scripture only. Okay, Scripture alone does not mean Scripture. We do use reason and we use science, but this is our final authority. That's a longer conversation, but an important one. But other things we use for our authority, I think maybe the, one of the main things we look to for authority in this day and age is our emotions. I feel this, so therefore it can't be right that God's Word says this. We use our feelings as a layer over the Bible, Right? But as Christians, all of life is submission to the covenant Lord who has revealed himself in his scripture. 
And it's for this reason that we preach through text of the Bible. You know, we don't just do themes, you know, whatever comes into Marshall's mind that morning. We preach through text of the Bible. And it's also the reason that Christians have always and will always be in conflict with culture around us. Okay? So the question I want to ask about this point is, are you willing to submit your life to everything the Scripture says? Are you willing to submit your, to the, what the Bible says about all of reality? Are you willing to submit to what the Bible says about human life and money and human sexuality? Are you willing to submit to what the Bible says about forgiveness and how we treat other people? Where is it that the Bible is pushing on you and asking you to submit? Now, that's to say it negatively. But let me say it positively, and I may bring this image back at the end. That's to say it negatively. Because the Scripture, if you pattern your life after the blueprint, the rule that is given here, it is like hanging your life on a beautiful skyscraper, right? If you think of a skyscraper that's going up, the first thing that goes up is the scaffolding, right? And after that, they hang you know, the windows and everything. But the Scripture is like the scaffolding on which a beautiful and strong life is hung. Because if, you're, if this is the blueprint, the Scripture for your life, you will learn to love, you will learn to pursue people, to care about what matters, what is good, what is beautiful, what is true, what is just. This is the scaffolding the Scripture is on which a great life can be hung. So that's the first thing. That is a rule of life, a blueprint to live by. But if you're willing to submit... Uh, the scripture will do that. But the second thing I want us to see is the scripture functions as a mirror. The second, so first is a blueprint, but it's also a mirror that reveals our hearts. Now look with me, think about these, these Pharisees here. They have used their traditions to try to manage down God and his word. These traditions that they're using have the effect of lowering the bar, of making God's word less offensive, making God's commands more manageable. You know, washing your hands is a lot. That's not really. <laughs> you wash your hands. You know what's a lot more? Honoring your father and your mother. And Jesus is using Scripture to show people who claim to love God's Word that they are using God's Word for their own ends. If I were to use an image, a metaphor for the Pharisees, it's like the Scripture for them is a rubber nose that they can contort to their own ends. And to these folks, Jesus quotes their own authority and he reveals their heart. Look with me, verse 7. You hypocrites, Jesus says. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching his doctrine, the commandments of men. Jesus is using the scriptures, their authority, their supposed authority, and holding it up and saying, Do you see yourself in this? You're a hypocrite. Your heart is far from me. I like to quote, uh, and I do fairly often from this pulpit, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, God, friends, God's word is not manageable. It is not manageable. God's word, it is a sword that probes us. It convicts us. I like to say it's not that you read the Bible, but that the Bible reads you. It's like a spiritual MRI that finds out the hidden crevices of your heart. And here Jesus is using Isaiah to expose the hearts of these religious leaders. And so the question is this. Will you let God's word do this for you? 
Let me ask that another way. Will you invite God's word to show you your heart? Will you invite God's word to be a mirror to your heart? Because if you don't, God's word will be like a two-way mirror where others see in, but you don't see clearly. But if you do, if you invite God's word into your heart and ask to see your heart for what it is, you begin to see what's in there, what's really in there. To use a metaphor I like to use, you're kissing the blade that cuts you. You're inviting something into your heart that can cut you, but you kiss it because it's making you a better you. You're like, how can I do that, Marshall? How can I use God's word as a mirror that reveals my heart, that reveals what's really going on? Let's use Martin Luther. Martin Luther, uh, his barber, I love this. My barber's never asked me this question, but his barber asked him, how do I pray? And Martin Luther, being Martin Luther, wrote a long paper about it. Uh, And uh, I actually have a summary of it written by Tim Keller. If you email me, I'll email it back to you. And he calls it the Garland Method of Prayer. The Garland Method of Prayer. And what you do is you take a passage of Scripture, often a short passage, even a phrase or a word even. You take a passage of Scripture and you pray this by going around it like a garland four times. Okay? Let me tell you what it is and then give you an example about this particular point of revealing our hearts, being a mirror to our hearts. First thing you do is you take a passage of Scripture and you wrap around it and you praise God for that passage, what it says about God. The second thing, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, is you confess. What does, this show, what does this passage show me about my heart? And I confess. But then third, you think, what does this passage show me about who Jesus is and how he's the fulfillment of all God promises for me? And then fourthly, how does this passage help me to pray for myself, my family, and the world? So let's take a famous passage of Scripture and do this wraparound, particularly on that second point of the mirror. Most famous verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Uh, you can see how you would praise God for that. But let's talk about the confession. You hold that phrase up, for God so loved the world. What about this phrase shows something about my heart that I can confess? It shows me at least two things. One, I don't love the world. And two, I don't really love God. If I'm honest, John 3.16 and Marshall speak would be like this, for Marshall so loved himself. Do you see this? You pray God's word and you see it as a mirror. Like that is saying something about God and it's reflecting something about me that is not too attractive. I can confess my sins and know of God's forgiveness. The Bible is a rule. It's a blueprint, but it's also a mirror that shows us our heart. Will you invite God's word to show you your heart? Will you kiss the blade that cuts you? But the third thing I want us to see about the scriptures from this passage is the scriptures function as a spur to prod us to love, as a spur that prods us to love. And we actually see this negatively first with the Pharisees. Because what have they been doing? These Pharisees, they've been using their tradition to mistreat people, namely their parents, okay? The fifth commandment, the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments is clear, honor your father and mother. In the first century, this is a time where there was no social security. There was no nursing homes, no at-home nurse, right? But the Pharisees have created a technicality so they can kind of slip out, kind of weasel out out of honoring and taking care of their parents. Again, verse 5, Jesus. If any, you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You see what they've done? Now, let's have a little honest moment here, a little honest moment. Have you ever kept the rules? 
Have you ever kept the rules so that you could do what is best for you and most, most serving to you but is not loving to other people? If you have, raise your hand. Every hand in the room should go up. Have you ever done something to keep the rules in a way that hurt other people? This week I told you I was visiting my family in Dallas, and so I was like, I'm writing this sermon, I asked my family that question. And they started, like, when have, when have I done this? They started laughing. Like, how many times, how many, let me count the ways that you have done this, right? I love what, uh, actually he's not a Christian, but what Franz Kafka says about a book. He says, Franz Kafka says, a book is an axe to the frozen sea within us. It's an axe to the frozen sea within us. And the Bible, even more specifically, is an axe to the frozen sea within us. And it breaks it up so that our hearts might be unfrozen so that we might love. The scripture is so that we might love other people, not mistreat them like we see here. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. We've already talked about them. The first four commandments are about how to love God. The second six commandments are about how to love other people, to love your neighbor, beginning with honor your father and mother. The fifth commandment. Let me quote Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Authority is not the power to control people, not to crush them, to put them in tiny boxes. The church often tries to do that, to tidy people up. But God's authority vested in Scripture is designed, as all God's authority, is to liberate human beings, to judge and condemn evil and sin, and to set people free to love, to set people free to be fully human. That is what the business, God is in the business of doing, setting us free to love. The Word of God is a spur to love. It is an axe to the frozen sea within us. Because what God cares most about is our hearts. Did you notice in this passage about authority how much talk there is of hearts? Just look with me quickly. Verse 9, but their heart is far from me. In verse 18, we're not going to talk about these verses in depth. But verse 18 it says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is saying, I don't care so much what's on the outside. I care what's on the inside. I care about the heart. Do you love? Now, the heart is not just about emotions. It is about the emotions. But the heart in the scriptures is the command center of the human being. It's the place where the mind, the feelings, and the will all come together. It's the command center. And scripture is designed to deal with and to heal our hearts unto love. To spur us to love. So we've seen that scripture is a blueprint that functions as a blueprint, a rule to live by. We've secondly seen that scripture is a mirror that reveals our heart. It functions as a mirror to show us who we are. And third, we've seen that it functions as a spur that prods us to love. But fourth, finally, and most importantly, scripture functions as a pointer to Christ. He is the end, the fulfillment of all the scripture, and it's in him that we, it's in the scriptures that we find him fulfilled. And what I want to do is just look with you real quickly, in conclusion here, at this last story, this beautiful story of this Canaanite woman. Look with me at verses 21 and following. Because this is a clear pointing of how Scripture points to Jesus. Now what happens here is Jesus finishes this dialogue with the Pharisees and then he goes further north. It's like he's going on a vacation. We don't really understand what he's doing. He's going far north to Tyre and Sidon. 
and he comes across this woman. And I just want to talk about her for a moment because she is a Canaanite, which means she's a pagan. She would have had very little exposure, we would think, to the word of God. And yet somehow it's, there's an echo of scripture in all of her sayings. Look with me, verse, uh, verse 22, and she says, O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She knows that he's the son of David. That's a scriptural language. And then Jesus is actually quiet. He's drawing something out of her. And then she says, verse 25, Lord. She knows that he's Lord. Lord, help me. And then she says more than she even realizes in verse 27 when Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a talking about the relationship between Gentiles and Jews. And she says, and I'll explain this, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. What's happening here? This woman has somehow intuited that the gospel has come through a Jewish man to the Jewish nation, but it's for all the world. She has some familiarity with the scriptures and she knows that all of scripture, she just intuits it. The echo of scripture that everything points to Jesus. And so Jesus, in one of the few times that he praises people in all the gospels, he says, oh woman, great is your faith. She's held on, she knows something, that's why she keeps, she, if you look, she comes back three times to him. She comes back three times to him. She knows that the scriptures point to him, she knows something of who he is and she's like a, she won't let go of him. She won't let go of him. She knows that the scripture points to Jesus. In some conclusion, I want to ask you to think about your own life for a moment. I want you to think about these four things I've said about the way that Scripture functions in life. That it first of all functions as a blueprint, it's a rule to live by. It sexually functions as a, a mirror that reveals your heart. And third, it functions as a spur, something that prods you to love. And then fourth, it functions as something that points you to Christ, who is the end, the only hope for our souls. And which of those four do you need to hear today from God's word? Do you need the blueprint? Do you need to learn to submit? Do you need something revealed to you? Something to see your heart, see who you really are? Do you need something that spurs you, that breaks open your heart so that you might love other people? Or do all of us need to see Jesus as the end and the fulfillment of scriptures and of all of life? Where is it today that you need to let God's word pierce you? Let God's word be living and active? Because I do come back to where I started a little while ago, and that is this, because the scriptures, the word of God, is the scaffolding on which a great life can be hung. It shows us the blueprint for life, it shows us ourself, it points us to Jesus. It is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let me pray for us. Great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word that in it points to you, that shows us life, how to live, how to love, but most of all shows us you in our great desperate need of you. Thank you, Jesus, for Christ's sake. Amen.